early last year. We've made it through the first two chapters, and today we're going to look at the first half of chapter 3. From the beginning, it's been clear that James is addressing the spiritual maturity level of his readers, and the entirety of the book um, is a series of tests, tests of genuine faith. And I think if you were to give the book of James a title other than the name of James, it might be something like Time to Grow Up, A Call to Spiritual Maturity. And I think that's exactly what James is doing. He's calling his readers and us to deeper levels of spiritual maturity. Let's remind ourselves of what James said back in chapter 1. If you turn back a page, um, James chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now remember that steadfastness. Uh, It means patient endurance. Verse 4 goes on to say, let steadfastness, so let that patient endurance have its full effect. Full means completeness. It carries the idea of wholeness and integrity. So in other words, James is saying, let that patient endurance become complete, bringing about wholeness and integrity, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We're going to see that word perfect again today. So just keep in mind, though, that this is referring to maturity, not perfection in the sense of faultless or unblemished or sinless. So James is calling his readers to deeper levels of spiritual maturity, and he does this by presenting a series of tests, tests of genuine faith. So some of the tests that we've already looked at are these. The spiritual mature, spiritually mature person asks for wisdom. They do not yield to temptation. They are a doer of the word and not a hearer only. They don't show partiality, but they love unconditionally. And they demonstrate their faith by their works, by what they do. Now today we're going to look at a subject that I don't think could be more relevant uh, for the day in which we live. The heading in my Bible um, for this chapter is Taming the Tongue. And I think that's a perfect heading and that's what I've titled the sermon today. The next test that James presents to us, to his readers, is this. The mark of a spiritually mature person is a tame tongue. And so we're going to unpack what that means as we walk through this today. Um, Remember, in chapter 1, James has already addressed speech. He said that we should all be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. The tongue is, can be, and is often a dangerous weapon that we must learn to control. It's been said that it takes a baby two years to learn to talk and then 50 years to learn to keep its mouth shut. So let's read this passage together and dive in. James chapter 3, start in verse 1. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. 
The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So the first point we're going to look at today is the the tongue tests the teacher. James begins here with a wise word of counsel for teachers. He's referring here to those who teach the word of God. Simply put, James is saying, be very cautious when you set out to take on the role of a teacher because of the potential influence that your words might have. He doesn't mention the tongue here specifically, but words lie at the heart of teaching ministry and an unreliable tongue is likely to provide a destructive influence on those being taught. John MacArthur said this, he said, so being a teacher of God's word is a very dangerous occupation for anyone because of the power of the tongue to speak error or to speak misjudgment or to speak inappropriately or to misrepresent Christ or the Holy Spirit. There is a great level of responsibility that comes with teaching. And James says the teacher will be judged with greater strictness. However, in a much broader sense of this, I think that it is safe to say that we are all teachers. Jesus, in his final instructions before ascending to heaven, said, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. At some level, we all have the responsibility to teach others the commands of Christ. Many of you serve our LifePoint kids by teaching them on Sunday mornings. Others serve our students on Wednesday nights. Others lead Bible studies. Those of us who are parents teach our children in our homes. It's not something that should be taken lightly. If we have teaching roles, particularly in the church, let's make sure that we come prepared, that we've done our homework, that we've thought through the words that we will say. Because words, as I often tell my girls, are important. James doesn't write here as one who has arrived. Okay, he's very conscious of his own shortcomings. And he includes himself in the next statement that he makes. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. We all stumble. It's present tense. This is a present tense here. It's common We stumble in many ways. We stumble now. But the tongue is one very dominant way in which we stumble. This also um, comes from John MacArthur, something he said about the Scripture's references to to the tongue. He said, Scriptures refer to the disaster of the mouth. The Bible refers directly or indirectly to a wicked tongue, a deceitful tongue, a lying tongue a perverse tongue, a filthy tongue, a corrupt tongue, a bitter tongue, an angry tongue, a crafty tongue, a flattering tongue, a slanderous tongue, a gossiping tongue, a backbiting tongue, a blaspheming tongue, a foolish tongue, a boasting tongue, a murmuring tongue. 
a complaining tongue, a cursing tongue, a contentious tongue, a sensual tongue, a vile tongue, a tail-bearing tongue, a whispering tongue, an exaggerating tongue, etc. Did you see yourself anywhere in there? No wonder God put our tongues in a cage behind our teeth, walled in by our mouths. We all stumble, and as we'll begin to see, much of the reason why we stumble has to do with our tongues. After James makes the statement that we all stumble, he goes on to say, And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And remember what I said a few moments ago, that we would run into this word perfect again. James could be saying that hypothetically, if someone were able to fully control his tongue, he would be perfect. But no one is able to do that. The only perfect person to ever live was Christ himself. So as I mentioned earlier, this word perfect is likely referring to maturity. And it's more likely that James is describing someone who is spiritually mature and able to control their tongues. James says that the one who controls his tongue is able also to bridle his whole body. To bridle means to restrain, to check, or to control with or as if with a bridle. A bridle is the headgear that is used to help control or steer a horse. And so what James is telling us is that control of the tongue brings control over the body. Proverbs 21.23 says, Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. James is going to go on here to give us three illustrations or examples of just how powerful the tongue is. The first two deal with the tongue's ability to determine our direction, which is our next point. The tongue determines our direction. His first example comes back to the horse reference that he's just made. Look at verse 3. He says, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Amber Block, one of our members here, could probably tell us a lot more about bridles and bits as she works with horses every day. But the bit is typically a short metal piece that extends across the horse's mouth and attaches to the bridle. The bit applies pressure to the horse's mouth, and when combined with the bridle and the reins, it gives a knowledgeable rider virtually complete control over the horse. Just like James says, the horse then obeys the rider, and the rider is able to guide the whole horse wherever he or she wants to go. Now here's something to think about. A typical thoroughbred racing horse weighs around 1,000 pounds. A Clydesdale can weigh easily double that, if not more. So 2,000 pounds plus. So something as small as a five to six inch bit in that horse's mouth allows a rider to control a very large animal. The second example that James gives is that of a rudder on a ship. Look at verse four again. He said, Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. I did some research on ships this week, and specifically I looked at the U.S. naval aircraft carriers. If you've never been up close to an aircraft carrier, they are a sight to behold. The Nimitz-class carrier was up until recently the largest aircraft carrier in the world. It's now been surpassed by a new class called the Ford class, 
of which the first ship will go into service in the next year or two. But the Nimitz-class carriers are nearly 1,100 feet long. That's over three and a half football fields. They tower 20 stories above the water, and the surface area of the flight deck is four and a half acres. Now, to give you some perspective, um, our church property on the whole is about seven acres. We own property outside of our red rail fence. The property size within the red rail fence is 4.7 acres. So the flight deck of an aircraft carrier is just slightly smaller than our property inside the red rail fence. These ships are massive. They're absolutely huge. But what's even more amazing is that these ships have two rudders that steer them wherever the captain wants to go. Those rudders are each 29 feet tall by 22 feet long. And I came in here and tried to measure out something that this week to try to figure out what that might look like. And the stage is about that size. So if you took this stage and you stood it up on end, that would be the size of the rudder on these aircraft carriers, and it has two of them. So we could stand these up and we could steer our property around the ocean if we wanted to. James is comparing here a human tongue to the bit in a horse's mouth and the rudder of a ship. Small, yet very powerful. The tongue is an instrument of extraordinary power, both for good and for evil, out of all proportion to its size. It's hugely influential. The tongue has the power to control the whole person and influence everything in a person's life. Now, in the scriptures, there's an indication that the tongue and the heart are connected. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. It says, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. He also said this in Mark chapter 7. He said, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on and said, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Your words, my words, are an indication of our heart and our true spiritual condition. This is a true test of our faith, which leads us to our next point. The tongue's ability to leave destruction in its wake. James gives his third and I believe most powerful example at the end of verse 5 when he says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Fire has been one of the greatest friends of man and nature. When it is under control, it warms our bodies, it cooks our food. It generates power. But when it is out of control, it is very dangerous. We've probably all seen or heard of the devastating effects of fire and how something as small as a spark can become a flame that can quickly engulf a structure, a field, or a forest. 
when Charity, my wife, was a young girl, the house across the street from her was destroyed by a fire that started from a cigarette that a man had in his hand when he fell asleep on the couch. Thankfully, no one was harmed, but the house was a total loss. Fires that we see almost every year in the western parts of the United States consume hundreds and thousands of acres and are often started by something as simple as a campfire that's left unattended. The fire of London in 1666 that started in a bakery quickly spread and destroyed much of that great city. And in 1871, Miss O'Leary's cow kicked over a lantern in Chicago and started that great and historic fire. James says in verse 6, The tongue is a fire. The tongue, like a fire when it is under control, is a blessing. When it's out of control, it is devastating. It can be a cure or a curse. Like a fire, like fire, a tongue's sinful words can spread destruction quickly. James gives some other descriptive terms for the tongue which reveal the seriousness of this whole subject. In verse 6, he goes on to say that the tongue is a world of unrighteousness. As you catch that, it's not just something that is unrighteous. It's an entire world of unrighteousness, a system of unrighteousness, if you will. That's how serious this is. Look what comes next. The tongue, he says, is set among our members, meaning it's a part of our body. It stains the whole body. If you've spent much time around campfires, you know how easily your clothes can begin to smell like the smoke that the fire puts off. Without a good washing, that smell is very hard to get rid of. This is the power that the tongue has. It stains the whole body. James says that it, it sets on fire the entire course of life. So what does he mean by that? It means that not only does the tongue stain your whole body, it has the power to affect the whole of your life, everything that you touch, every person in your circle of influence. So the tongue is a whole system, a whole world of unrighteousness inside your mouth that stains your whole body and touches every person in your sphere of influence. But James doesn't stop there. He says the tongue is set on fire by hell itself. In other words, Satan is behind it all. The term used for hell here is the term Gehenna, which is found only 11 times in the New Testament. Jesus uses the word 10 times. The only other time is right here in James chapter 3. Gehenna is a Greek word for the valley of Hinnom, which lies outside of Jerusalem. Prior to the reign of Josiah, as recorded in the Old Testament, this was a place of human sacrifice where children were offered to the god Molech. Josiah, during his reign, brought all of that to an end. And over time, it became a place of hatred and disgust to the Jews, so much so that it became the place where all of the garbage from the city was taken out to be burned. Garbage, refuse, the dead bodies of animals and criminals were thrown into the valley of Hinnom or Gehenna. So in order to burn all of this garbage, and the city produced a lot of it, the fire burned all the time. And it became known as the Gehenna of fire because the fire never went out. And Jesus used this symbolism of Gehenna to describe the place of everlasting punishment. He spoke of Gehenna not only to warn people, but to condemn the hypocritical religious leaders of his day. 
Hell, the place of everlasting punishment, is the source of evil of the tongue. Next, I want to briefly look at the difficulty of taming the tongue. Look what he says in verses 7 and 8. He says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. So James, you're telling me all these horrible things about my tongue, how wicked it can be, how destructive it can be, and now it sounds like you're telling me that there's no hope. I can't tame my tongue. Well, that's not exactly what James is saying here. He said that no human can tame the tongue. This is something that only God can do in our lives. And as I've said it before, as we've walked through this great book, we must yield our lives to Christ. Every aspect of our lives, including our tongue. God is the one who does the transforming work in our lives, sanctifying us when we yield our lives to him. But James isn't quite done yet. Just when you think it couldn't get any worse, James says at the end of verse 8 that the tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Listen to what one commentator said. He said, The unregenerate tongue roams the wilds, quick to defend itself, swift to attack others, anxious to subdue them, always marked by evil. It mimics Satan in this respect who having rebelled against the God of peace, can never settle. He goes to and fro throughout the earth, as we see in Job, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, as Peter says in his first letter. The tongue that is under his lordship, that is the lordship of Satan, always shares that tendency. It has an inbuilt need to guard its own territory, to destroy its rivals, to be the king of the beasts. Now, all of this is naturally true of the unregenerate soul, those who are not believers, those who are not yet followers of Christ. But as we all know, these same destructive powers can and are released even among the community of believers. Remember that this is who James is writing to. He's writing to a community of believers. He's writing to his people. These were his people who had to flee Jerusalem um, following persecution after the stoning of Stephen. Look at verse 9 and 10 again. He says, With it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. This is reminiscent of James's words back in chapter 1 where he referred to the double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. We can stand here in this room on Sunday, and we can sing praises to our king. And then on Monday, we can gossip about the neighbor down the street. We can yell at our children. We can talk back to our parents. We can spew all kinds of vile things towards our fellow man. Our tongues are often instruments of hypocrisy. James is quick to follow this up with, My brothers, these things ought not to be so. The word ought here carries with it the weight of necessity. This isn't simply a suggestion that James is making. You might remember me saying earlier on in the series that James issues about 50 commands in this short book, and this is one of those. James is not saying here, okay, folks, it would be really good if this were not the case, if we didn't do this. No, 
James is saying this must not be the case. Why? Because the words of the Christian are significant. The words that come out of the mouths of believers are significant. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Acts twenty thirty two. Paul says, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Romans ten seventeen says, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. As believers, we have been given the words of eternal life. We have been given the word of His grace, and it is our responsibility to make those things known through the words that we use. Words to build up and not tear down. So the mark of the believer, a test of genuine faith, is a controlled tongue. I want, I want you to hear what the Scriptures say about the tongue. It speaks at extensive length about the tongue, and I'm just going to touch on a handful here. I'd encourage you to go home today and put tongue in the search box on Bible Gateway and read all that the Scriptures have to say about the tongue, both good and bad. The psalmists say this about some of these things about the wicked and in relation to the tongue. Psalm 5.9 says, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Psalm 50 verse 19, You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. Psalm, uh, Psalm 73.9, They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts throughout the earth. Psalm 140, verse 3, they make their tongue sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps. In contrast to this, the psalmist also things, say things like this about the tongue and the mouth. Psalm 34, 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Psalm 34, 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Psalm 37.30, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. Psalm 119.172 that we quoted this morning, my tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right. Here are some of the things that the book of Proverbs says about the tongue. Proverbs 10.20, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver, the heart of the wicked is of little worth. Proverbs 12:18 There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15:2 The tongue of the wise commends knowledge but the mouths of fools pour out folly. Proverbs 18:21 Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. Proverbs 31:26 She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. James wraps up this section with a couple of questions and a statement. Look with me again at verses 11 through 12. He says, Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? 
Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. These are questions with obvious answers. And the point that James is trying to make to his readers and to us is that in the same way that a spring doesn't produce both salt and fresh water, the tongue should not produce both blessings and curses. The believer must allow God to tame the tongue in order to bring about greater spiritual maturity. So as we begin to wrap this up, I want to suggest to us that there is a tongue in our day and age that's perhaps even more dangerous than the tongue hiding behind our teeth. A tongue that James could not have even imagined. And that is the digital tongue. That's the words that are spoken with these digits at the end of our hands. I want to read parts of an article that I came across last week that was written about three years ago. It's by Alex Hong, and it's called Taming the Digital Tongue, which is our last point. He starts off with the definition of the verb, to troll. It means to intentionally provoke others online with tactics ranging from starting unnecessary arguments to seeking to damage someone's reputation. Harsh words, hurt emotions, and damaged reputations fill our social media feeds every waking morning. Tony Reinke, in his book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, puts the problem this way. He says, in an age when anyone with a smartphone can publish dirt on anyone else, we must know that spreading antagonistic messages online with the intent of provoking hostility without any desire for resolution is what the world calls trolling and what the New Testament calls slander. The sad reality is that some Christians have been guilty of trolling and fail to recognize its destructive effects. Reinke explains how easy it is for us to engage in this particular sin. He said, each of us have an inner troll, an inner slanderer, some part of us that would love to text some dirt to a friend, publish dirt online, and anonymously consume that dirt online. Slander, gossip, half-truths, which the world calls alternative facts or fake news, lying, critical speech, insult, sarcasm, and ridicule could all be labeled trolling. Corrupting talk should not come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That's Ephesians 4.29. We Christians need to first acknowledge that we are too often guilty of these particular sins and pray that God would renew our speech with truth and love. It's often easier to speak rashly and inappropriately, privately, behind a computer screen rather than speaking to someone face-to-face where tone, demeanor, and facial expressions would prevent what we would actually otherwise say. As we've seen today from James, the tongue is a world of unrighteousness and often instruments of hypocrisy that man cannot tame. The article finishes this way. The words of Christians online or in person are especially significant. And these are things I mentioned earlier. We are stewards of the message of the cross, the word of his grace, and have been given words of eternal life. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Therefore, let us repent of any form of trolling and speak words that build up 
at the right time so that it may be a means of grace for someone else. I read this as well this week. It was from a sermon by a guy called Sinclair Ferguson. He said, Too many Christians fall into the trap of believing that God gives regeneration and justification, but then we are essentially left to our own efforts to do the rest. We need to see that we live by every word that comes out of God's mouth. God's word sanctifies us. The more I feed myself the scriptures and the more that I am saturated with the word in a context like this, the more the word of Christ will do the sanctifying work in me and on me. And consequently, the more Christ will train my tongue as his word molds and shapes me. Most of you will know this, some may not. Uh, My family lived in Wales in the United Kingdom for just over 13 years. And you may know this if you've traveled in Europe at all. Um, it's somewhat, somewhat easy to blend into the culture around you until you have to open your mouth to speak. Inevitably, you don't have to say much before the comments and questions start to come. You're not from around here. Where are you from? What brings you here? My accent caused me to stand out. And in many ways, that was an advantage. People would listen more closely. Charity, my wife and I, would go into schools and lead assemblies where we would share Bible studies, uh, Bible stories, and teach them songs. And we often had very attentive audiences because our American accent caught their attention. And that got me to thinking about the speech of the believer this week. Do we capture the attention of the people around us because we speak with an accent, a Jesus-like accent? Or does our speech resemble too closely the speech of those around us that we simply blend in? Maybe we're content to live that way. Maybe we prefer to go unnoticed. But church, that's not the life that we are called to. Remember again Jesus' words to us. We are called to make disciples. We are called to teach the commands of Christ. We need to learn to speak with an accent, a Jesus-like accent. And an accent comes when we yield our lives to Christ, when we allow Him to do a sanctifying work in us, when we allow Him to tame our tongues. Jesus gave a stark warning in Matthew 26. He said this, I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Words are so important. We need to learn to use our tongues wisely. This is not something that we can do. We can't, James has told us specifically here, we cannot tame our tongues. But God can when we yield our lives to him. Uh, in just a minute, the band's gonna come up and we're gonna sing our last song. And it's, I think we've sung it once here before, but it's based on the old chorus, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And some new verses in the chorus have been written for it. And I just wanna ask you to, to listen to the words as you sing them. 
um, to focus on the words on the screen and think about the amazing grace that God has poured out on us. What He's done for us in going to the cross. But the last verse says this. It says, Turn your eyes to the heavens. Our King will return for His own. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will shout. All glory to Jesus alone. Scripture teaches this, that one day when Jesus returns, every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those of us who are believers, we will bow the knee joyfully at the sight of our Savior. But what Scripture teaches is that everyone will bow the knee whether you want to or not. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord whether you want to or not. My question to you today is, have you yielded your life to Christ? Have you surrendered to His Lordship? Have you fixed your eyes on Jesus? Let's pray.